This morning, I've asked my friend and one of our elders, Dr. Torrance Sparkman, to come and speak about a serious topic in our culture, the topic of racial division. I think we often shy away from talking about this question for fear of asking the wrong question or saying the wrong thing. But as Christians, we ought to have the courage not only to address this issue, but to model it differently in our relationships with each other and even in our worship. Torrance not only knows a thing about uh, the experience of racism, but he also knows a lot about what God's Word has to say about it. I know that you'll be encouraged and challenged by his words. Good morning, Browncroft. How many Mr. Rogers fans do we have out there? All right, so I know who I'm talking to. This morning, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, where we'll read from Luke chapter 10 on from 30 to 37. Luke chapter 10, 30 through 37. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, we thank you for your presence here today, Lord. We do ask for your uh, anointed today, Lord. We ask that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, that you would allow us to hear from you in a way that we may not have heard from you before. Lord, we ask that you would make us sensitive and that we would hear what you would challenge us to do and who you would challenge us to be, to be the best neighbors that we can be. Lord, we do thank you. I thank you for the presence of everyone who's here and everyone who is out in the airwaves today. Lord, let it be that your word is glorified. You are lifted up. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37 reads as such. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed to the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took, him to, and took care of him. The next day he, took out, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man? who fell into the hands of the robber. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. My message this morning is entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Won't you be my neighbor? If you grew up in the Mr. Rogers era like I did, you probably have feelings that are similar to mine. Mr. Rogers had a way of making you feel good about yourself. He made you feel welcomed and safe. And no one was a stranger in his neighborhood, from people to puppets. It was a special place. It was a special neighborhood. And as a kid, I wanted to go there. His show was groundbreaking. It was revolutionary almost. He had a way of disarming difficult subjects. He, he talked about war and disability and race and divorce. These were subjects that were sometimes talked about 
by adults behind closed doors and overheard by children. But Mr. Rogers had a way of disarming the explosiveness of the subject and a way of reducing the fear and the anxiety associated with the subject, making you feel welcome to talk about it. As I grew up, I began to see how unique Mr. Rogers' show was. It wasn't like the other shows, other cartoons for children at that time. It was, it was subtly radical. No one was getting poked in the eye. No one was getting tricked or chased or made fun of. And it just made you feel uncomfortable. Uh, compared to other shows, in fact, it was a little weird, a little countercultural. I mean, who talks to puppets? What kind of poster route did Mr. McFeely have that would allow him to sit with Mr. Rogers for a half hour and have tea? <laughs> Why was Lady Elaine's nose and cheeks so red and pointy all the time? I just didn't get it. Honestly, from a worldly point of view, Mr. Rogers may have come off a little strange, too. Who takes off his jacket in order to put on a cardigan and sneakers? Why was he so nice to people? Even back then, no one was that kind. And how did he have such diverse friends? Yeah, when I look back at the show, I can see it, that it was a little strange according to the world. But if I look at him and I look at the show from the perspective of what he was trying to accomplish, it was actually pretty genius. He imagined a neighborhood where people would feel safe, where there would be no pretense and no pressure, a world where, every, where everyone was valued and respected from the kid whose parents had just divorced to the kid whose grandmother had just died to the black police officer who was in the neighborhood to the speedy postman who seemed to spend half his day with Mr. Rogers. <laughs> he imagined a world where people could talk through tough subjects in a neighborhood where there was safety and empathy. If there was a problem, there was someone there who could listen to it and help you come to a resolution. It didn't matter what their background was or where they came from. Mr. Rogers always had a listening ear. Mr. Rogers began his show by asking the question, won't you be my neighbor? But he was probably the best neighbor of all. Out of humility, out of compassion, out of love, he made himself available to those who wanted to talk. He wanted to deal with the challenging uh, subjects. And even back then, that was rare. But like a good neighbor who seemed strange to you at first, once you got to know him and once you got to see his heart, you could begin to trust him. You could begin to accept that this person is just as human as I am. Truth be told, in the eyes of your neighbors, you might be a little strange, too. You might have some weird ways, too. They have seen the way you dress on Saturday morning when you go to Wegmans to the grocery store. They can smell what's cooking late at night when every, the rest of the neighborhood is asleep. They can see the weird way that you cut your grass 
But once they get to know you and begin to understand why you became a Patriots fan, <laughs> they can begin to accept why or accept that you are human too. Browncroft and friends, this message is primarily about racism, the sin of racism. I had been asked to talk about this subject a while back after I had talked about my experiences as a black man in the United States. And you should know that it is with some trepidation that I talk about it. It's not because I'm afraid to do so, but because I fear that those who have a polarized view of racism and its implications will be just further pushed into their justifications for believing the way that they do. But it is my hope that the Holy Spirit will speak to all of us in the way that we need to be spoken to. Now, in full disclosure, I have had racist and prejudiced thoughts as well. I've had situations where I've had to ask the Lord to help me to see the person or the persons as individuals rather than a representative of a whole people group. I get spitting mad and angry when I perceive hypocritical responses to behaviors that I believe a black person or a brown person could never get away with. The scandals, the protests, the crimes that would have been and sometimes are the end of some people's careers. I get spitting mad and angry when I perceive that someone has tried to do something to me or something aggressive or deliberately hurtful because of my race. Like a few months ago when we pulled into our driveway uh, on a Sunday and uh, two weeks in a row found banana peels on my driveway. That makes me angry. I get a little upset. I know some of you get spitting mad and angry when you perceive that race is used as a manipulative tool and that the media is just hyping this up. Some may feel that if the person, that persons are too needy and, and too sensitive and may even think that if they feel so hurt about it, they should just go back to their country of origin. I know some of you get spitting mad and angry too. But I believe this parable is an illustration of how we sometimes act when it comes to the sin of racism is an example also of how we can still honor Christ when it comes to addressing the sin. Going back to verse 29 and in response to the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells him a story about a man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. This man is beaten and robbed and stripped of his clothes and left for dead. Jesus uses the indifference of the two individuals who you would think would be more responsive to a man who was left for dead. He describes indifference and introduces details that he assumes would change the paradigm of the lawyer who he was talking to. One of those details happened to be that the rescuer was a Samaritan someone who would be disliked because of his heritage and ethnic background. I suggest that there was indifference, 
not because, it's be, because it's not like the priest and the Levite didn't see the man on the side of the road. They obviously saw him, but they chose to pass by on the other side. I say they were indifferent because they just didn't care enough about the beaten man to see to his knees, to do anything about his situation. Honestly, they were cold-hearted. I don't know exactly what they were thinking when they passed him by. Perhaps they thought that everyone knows that this road is dangerous. People are always getting robbed on this road. Maybe he should have never come down this road in the first place. Maybe he should have come with some protection. He could have had the right people to come with him. Maybe this man should have come in the daytime when he could see uh, the light and he could see who might be lurking in the corners. Maybe he shouldn't have come with all of that baggage and all of that stuff that made him so conspicuous. But just like I am, they were just speculating. But they wouldn't have known what the man's situation was because they never stopped to find out. They never stopped to hear his story. They were cold-hearted. Maybe they thought that if they stopped that they would be robbed too. I don't know, but I do know that they didn't stop and help. I would just be speculating if I said that they didn't stop because they had to go to a church service or they had to go to a funeral or they had to go to a wedding or there was a baby being born and they had to do their religious duties. I can reasonably speculate that because the Jewish tradition did not allow them to deal with uh, the dead and this man was half dead, that they decided that I'm not going to do anything. I don't want to contaminate myself. I'm just speculating on that. But I do know that they didn't stop. They can see that this man was in a desperate situation, but they didn't stop. It was business as usual. This message is to the church and the individuals who are in the church. When you see a desperate situation, when you see the desperate situation that people are in, because of the sin of racism, and you decide that you don't want to stop to address it, that's cold-hearted. You are saying, we just want to carry out business as usual. A good friend of mine, Dr. Ronald Jackson, who teaches on race, he tells his class that we often treat racism and racist behavior like a crash on the side of the road. We notice it, but if it doesn't involve someone like me or someone I know, we keep moving. And that's just what the priests and the Levite did. But let me bring this a little closer to home. Just like I speculated on the details and the reasons why these two didn't stop, sometimes we speculate about the backgrounds and the situations of people who aren't like us. And let me say that if this isn't you, I'm not referring to you. I'll be done in a moment. We say things like that mother how should, how, why did she bring her child thousands of miles by foot, not knowing where they will end up? 
The answer to that question is a desperate one. We say things like their children wouldn't be separated. They wouldn't be caught in the cages and they wouldn't have to sleep in the cages if they had just followed the rules. Things like they should have known better than to pack so many people on one boat. But the truth is, we don't really know what the situation is. We don't know what the mother's situation was or why they tried to fit so many people in one boat. We're really just speculating. But to not see the desperation is just plain cold. Maybe the media does hype it up or look for the worst stories. But I know this, if you see one baby washed up on the shore, if you see one child separated from their family, if you see one family living in a cage, if you see one church and one synagogue shot up, it ought to hit you in your heart and cause you to think, what's going on here? To not recognize the level of evil that comes with this is just plain cold. For some, the reason, or the, for some, the question might be, well, what about this is racist? I can see it being cold. I can see it being indifferent. But where does the racism come in? It becomes racist when you can perceive and speculate the worst about one people group, but you can't perceive and speculate the worst about another people group. It becomes racist when you can sympathize with members of your own people group when they experience hardship, but can't sympathize with members of another people group when they experience hardship. And here's where it gets tough. And again, if this is not you, please don't take offense. I'm not referring to you. But if you can sympathize with users of Oxycontin, and methamphetamines, but can't sympathize with users of heroin and crack cocaine, you may want to think about it. If your idea of assistance from, for one group is a just say no campaign, and another group is government-sponsored lawsuits and more funding for treatment facilities, you may want to think about it. If you can sympathize with one mother who bribes the school to send her daughter to a grade school, but get 14 days in jail, but can't sympathize with another mother who can't afford to send her kids to school and lied about her address in order to get her child into school, but gets five years in jail, you may want to think about it. If you can sympathize with the migration of one people group, who were fleeing famine, religious persecution, disease, and simply wanted to pursue the prosperity, the dream that they heard about, but can't sympathize with the migration of people fleeing violence and war and poverty and the impact of drugs and trying to pursue the dream of prosperity that they heard about, you may want to think about it. If you can see the desperation and need in one group, 
but can't see the desperation and need in another group, then you can't convince me that you don't see color. You just can't convince me of that. For those that think that I'm just trying to put a political spin on this and uh, I'm just talking about open borders and I'm talking about ignoring the rule of law and just giving money to lazy people, and you know there are lazy people on all sides. No, I'm not. I'm simply saying don't be cold-hearted. Be a neighbor and treat people the way you would want to be treated if you were in a desperate situation or not. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. For us Christians, it's time to stop walking past the sin of racism and making excuses for inaction and insensitivity. Excuses like that was 400 years ago. I'm not a slave owner. We've had a black president we have affirmative action, or the media hypes all this stuff up. All of this is true. But if we weren't still feeling the effects of racism, the Sunday church hour wouldn't still be the most segregated hour in our country. By this simple fact alone, it tells us that we have a problem. And I have news for you. If you think that the church in heaven is going to be homogeneous, you've got a problem. If you think that there's going to be one worship style, if you think there ain't going to be some shouting, you've got a problem. And I'm speaking to all churches open in Jesus' name. Racism comes from the father of lies. And it thrives when we hold an earthbound instead of a heavenbound view of the world. The real riches are up there. Why do we behave like this world is all there is? I wish I had time to, more time to break this down. But we, as Christians, are driven by faith and not by fear. Stewardship, yes. Selfishness, no. We choose people over politics. Jesus had harsh words for the scribes and the Pharisees who hid behind the laws and didn't want to deal with the spiritual implications of their own actions. He called them hypocrites and worse. Matthew chapter 29, Matthew chapter 23, verse 26 through 29. With a bit of revisionist history, they said we would have not been the ones who shed the blood of the prophets. But at the same time, these were the ones who were trying and conspiring against Jesus. Browncroft and friends, we can't hide behind laws guaranteeing free expression and a person's right to wave a Confederate flag and build monuments to Robert E. Lee, and at the same time not understand the spiritual implications of racism and the pain that these symbols evoke. You can't call the police on black folks for an asinine reason like barbecuing in a public park and not understand that in the minds of some, you are weaponizing the police 
and giving them permission to take a life. I'm not saying don't call the police on people who do wrong. I'm not saying have open borders or ignore the rules of law. We need laws. Otherwise, the boards of most corporations in the Fortune 500 would all look the same. I'm going to drink my water on that while you think about it. But what I am saying to all Christians is be a good neighbor, a godly neighbor. Love God first and his kingdom and what his kingdom is about. And then love me the way you would love yourself. Now, normally I might stop here, but I need to make one more important point. Plus, Pastor Rob and Rebecca gave me 20 more minutes. <laughs> no, they didn't. They didn't give me 20 minutes. But my second point is this, is that we have to act with genuine compassion and genuine courage. That's what the Samaritan did. The thought may have crossed his mind that this might be a setup for me getting robbed too. The thought may have crossed his mind that this encounter could cost me a lot of money. What if the innkeeper sticks it to me? What if this guy never gets well or doesn't get well before I get back? His decision took compassion and courage. His compassion and courage had to overpower his natural inclination. In our natural minds, it's not easy to attend to the, and address the issues of racism, especially when you feel like you're not the cause. But in our spiritual minds, or as they say where I'm from, in our sanctified minds, we've got to pay attention and act when we see that something is wrong. We've got to have genuine compassion and genuine courage. Our sanctified minds have to overpower our natural minds. In 2012, I took a group of students to Brazil. Most of them were, were white. We all went to the restaurant, and uh, at the end, we all went up to pay, and they were standing in front of me. While I was standing there, one, I'm behind, and one of the cashiers came from behind the counter to come to serve me. Now, my students turned around with their mouth open. They were like, what just happened? And I kind of did one of those smiles and half shrugs. Maybe they thought I was just so good looking they had to serve me first. <laughs> I justified it. I said, maybe it's the culture. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. But in my heart, I knew it was wrong. What this moment called for was genuine compassion and genuine courage. I should have been saved enough and secure enough to say, no, they were here first. But I didn't. And to be honest with you, I rather enjoyed my privilege. But this was wrong. The situation was wrong. And I was wrong. What is called for today is genuine compassion and genuine courage. Actually, what was called for decades ago was genuine compassion 
and genuine courage. Not just abolition, but abolition of hate. Not just civil and social reconstruction, but the reconstruction of our hearts. Not just legislation in the form of proclamations and ratified by the Congress, but laws that came from God that are written on our hearts and ratified by Jesus Christ himself. We may be a little late, but God still heals. God still softens his hearts. He still empowers us through the Holy Spirit to reach out and to talk to somebody who we don't know. He still inspires us to be courageous, to look and see about their need, to realize that you could be in the same situation. But it's got to be genuine compassion. It's got to be genuine courage. People know by our actions whether our compassion and courage is fake. Like when I was in seminary, and one of my professors, seminary professors, used the word niggardly. Right before a class was about to break, he says, okay, well, uh, I don't want to be niggardly with your time, and uh, so I'm going to give you a break. After he said it, he saw me and another African-American in the class, and he comes running up the lecture, set, lecture hall, and he says, hey, 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 uh, uh, I, I'm really sorry for, for using that word. Uh, uh, I'm going to ask your forgiveness and, and, uh, and everything. And I said, you know, it's, it's all right. Me wanting to let him off the hook, I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm really not offended. You know, it was, it was a strange choice of words, uh, but I know what the word means. The word means stingy. So what he was trying to say was, I don't want to be stingy with your time. Now, again, I thought it was a poor choice of words, and I said, okay, I'll just let him off the hook. But you know what he did the next semester? He did the same thing. I heard about it from my classmates. They said, hey, man, you know what happened at class today? Uh, Professor so-and-so used this term niggardly in class. And then after he saw me in class, he came running up to tell me that he was sorry. That's fake. That's fake. That's not genuine compassion nor genuine courage. Or another time when we were in counseling class and the professor showed us a video of different situations that married couples might be in or uh, marital counseling sessions. I noticed that when the professor showed the video of the white couple uh, in crisis, that the faces on my classmates were like, wow, that was very serious. They were really engaged. But when they showed the couple, the black couple in crisis, you would have thought it was an episode of the Jeffersons. It was hysterical. They were laughing. After they stopped it, I got up and I, I was appalled by that one. And I gave them a piece of my mind. After I got done, I sat down. And the professor went on like nothing happened. That's fake. Here we are preparing people for ministry, for all people. But we can't muster up enough compassion to see that the marital crisis that these people were experiencing was the same problem. After I got done, the professor said nothing, and I was a little disappointed. What was interesting is that some of the Korean students were in the class. 
They came up to me afterward. They said, man, we, we're glad you said something about that because that was rude. I said, well, yeah, you know. But the point is we have to say something when we see things like that. But sometimes they operate, seminary students and seminary professors, sometimes they operate in their natural minds and not their sanctified minds too. To be honest with you, I'd rather have the guy who came to fix my flat when I had a U-Haul truck and I was in Mississippi. And uh, the U-Haul, the trailer caught a, a flat and uh, it was about 100 degrees outside. And the guy pulls up and when I got out of the truck, he looked at my face and his whole countenance changed. And I say, hey, how you, how you doing? He looked me in the face and said nothing. And I said, oh, okay, okay. I said, well, I appreciate you coming. Looked me in the face again, and it was like I hadn't said a word. So I, <laughs> I went back and got in the truck and turned the air conditioner on. Now, I had plenty of cold waters. Some might say, you, you should have offered him some water. Probably. But after a few minutes, I looked up, and he was gone. I got out of the truck, and I looked, and I saw that he had fixed the tire, but never said a word to me. But at least the only thing I could say about that was he wasn't fake. You see, exercising genuine compassion and genuine courage when it comes to racism is going to cost us something something more expensive than money, and something more precious than words. It's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us mental energy, physical energy. It's going to cost us paradigm shifts and worldview changes. For some of us, it might even cost us our jobs, or our promotions, or our paychecks, or our privileges, or our politics. It may cost you your best jokes or your most colorful language. It may even cost you your team mascot. No, not the team mascot. Yes, even the team mascot. Somebody just said, I, now I know this dude is crazy. <laughs> I'm not giving up my team mascot. Browncroft and friends exercising genuine compassion and courage requires us to operate in our sanctified minds and not our natural minds. And it's going to cost us something. Finally, as I close this message, I close it with the same assumption that I made when I started. The assumption that Mr. Rogers had and that I'm making now. The assumption that you want to be my neighbor. If you are filled with hatred towards me and you see me as less than human, this message probably wasn't for you. Me and my real neighbors are going to pray for you and ask God to prick your heart and help you to see that the same sacrifice that he made for you is the same sacrifice that he made for me. Because truth be told, I was the guy that was laying on the side of the road. 
I was the guy that was beaten up by my sin, stripped of my dignity, and stripped of my righteousness. I was the one that was left for dead. But Jesus came by, and he saw me laying there, and he saw me exposed. He saw me helpless, but he covered me. He looked past my excuses and the reasons why I was there. He ignored the reasons why he shouldn't help me, and he showed genuine compassion. He courageously carried me to the place where I could get better. And he told the Holy Spirit to take care of him until I get back. And then he paid it all. He sacrificed more than money. He sacrificed himself. To be honest with you, I'm still a little sick right now. But every day that I'm under the, the tutelage and under the Holy Spirit's charge, I get a little better and my wounds start to heal. He invested in me, and even though it cost him a great deal, but this act was a demonstration of genuine compassion and genuine courage. He's a better friend than I've been to myself, and he's the best neighbor I've ever had, and I've had some good neighbors. He made the assumption that because he demonstrated genuine compassion and genuine courage, that I could go and do the same thing. The assumption was that I could be a better neighbor. And I say to you as humbly as I can and in the name of Jesus, go and do the same. Thank you, Browncroft Community Church. Thank you, Twin City Bible Church. Thank you to all of seminary professors and seminary students who thought with their sanctified minds, and my classmates who blessed me and blessed my family. Thank you for those who are here who have defended me and have stood up against the sin of racism. Thank you to all of my good neighbors. Let's stand and let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for making the ultimate sacrifice and helping us to realize that in your eyesight, in your eyesight, we were worth it. Even though we didn't deserve it, you died for our sins, and we thank you for that. But Lord, as you have challenged us to go and be a good neighbor, we ask, God, that you would continue to help us to, to see your good works and to glorify you as a result. Help us to know, Lord, that this place, this earth, is not our final place, our final destination. But you desire for us to behave as if we are building the kingdom of heaven on earth. We ask, God, that you would make us sensitive to those issues of race, that you would allow us to see the perspective of the other person as well as our own. I thank you for those who are here in this congregation today. And I even pray for those who don't know you and for those who have hatred in their hearts. I ask, God, that in some way that you would reach them and allow them to see that the same sacrifice you made for, for them was the same sacrifice you made for me. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.